Hey dads, I'm going to give you a statement and then I'm going to give you a challenge. Uh, The statement is one that a lot of you can relate to, especially if you have or had teenagers. The statement is this by Charles Wadsworth. By the time a man realizes that maybe his father was right, he usually has a son who thinks he's wrong. Yeah, and there should have been some amens right there, I'm convinced. But here's the challenge to you, Dad. Just hang in there. Keep walking with the Lord. Because here's what I want you to understand. Your children will follow your example more than they follow your advice. They'll remember some of the advice. And there's nothing wrong with giving them advice. Please continue to do that. But they're going to remember two or three things maybe that you said as they were growing up. The thing they're going to remember most is your example. How you lived your life. So live your life for the Lord. And give them footsteps to follow for years to come. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank you that you have invited us. The God of all creation. To refer to you as our heavenly Father. And that is just an awesome honor and privilege. But we come on behalf of these dads. These fathers that are standing. And Lord for some. Perhaps they're discouraged right now. Maybe they they're feel kind of lost and wandering, but I just pray you'll work in their lives in a special way so that they will be have a desire and a commitment to walk with you each day and just to leave footsteps for their kids to follow. Thank you most of all, Lord, that though you have blessed us with family, though you have blessed us with kids, our greatest blessing is the Lord Jesus Christ. And may our kids see Jesus in us. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, for some reason I'm struggling with my voice again today. I feel fine. I don't have a cold. don't have allergies. I just don't have a voice. So, here's what I need you to do. Amens will strengthen my voice today. Okay? (laughs) Maybe not, but but maybe. Okay? Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 24. That's just going to be our beginning text, and we will end up at chapter 26. We're doing a brief mess or a brief series in the book of Isaiah, not nearly trying to cover everything in the book, but during the month of June, we're kind of dipping our toe into the book of Isaiah. Some of the key passages uh, that we find in this beautiful Old Testament book. Isaiah chapter 24, and then eventually. Finding our way to Isaiah 26. Zig Ziglar used to say, difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. I think that's a good reminder for some people right now. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. That is certainly true in today's text in the book of Isaiah. The year was 739 B.C., 700 plus years before Christ. And in that time, there was a man who could see that his nation of Judah was in big trouble. His name, of course, was Isaiah. God called Isaiah to be a prophet. And his ministry spanned more than 50 years. He ministered during the reign of four different kings. He was kind of the Billy Graham of his day. 
Sadly, one by one, these kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, one by one, these kings led the nation into political and into spiritual decay. One by one, each king led the nation of of Judah further and further away from God. Isaiah came on the scene as a prophet to seek to bring the nation back to God before it was too late. That was his role. That was his goal. To bring the nation of God, the people of God, back to God before it was too late. And one of the things that motivated Isaiah to preach what he preached was something that God showed him in chapter 24. And God led him to write down these words God showed Isaiah that there is coming an end times catastrophe that will engulf the entire world. Isaiah wrote about it in chapter 24, the first three verses. We read these words. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. And nobody will be exempt from this because he describes it this way in verse 2. It will be the same for the priest as for the people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. Then he says, the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. I like those, that last sentence because Isaiah is emphasizing these are not just the musings of an old prophet. These are not just the ideas of this one man. Isaiah emphasized the Lord has spoken these words. Now, Isaiah wasn't the only one who talked about this event. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament called this time of terrible judgment that is out in the future, they called this time of terrible judgment the day of the Lord. Sometimes it is shortened simply to that day or the day. It's also described in the New Testament in the book of Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, Revelation verse, uh, chapter 6 through 19. In fact, this day of the Lord is so prominent in prophecy that when you get to Revelation, it covers chapter 6 through chapter 19. So whenever you see this phrase, the day of the Lord, or that day. It is messianic and apocalyptic language describing the time of God's final victory over the forces of evil. Get that in your mind. That day, that phrase, that day, is describing that end times event. This time of global judgment. This time when God will exact Final victory over the forces of evil. And so when we come to chapter 26, with that background knowledge, when we come to chapter 26, we are not surprised by the first three words of chapter 26. In that day. We know what that day is now, don't we? Now don't read any more of the verse yet, but just focus on those three words. In that day. In other words, there is a day of judgment on God's calendar. It's interesting that even in the Old Testament, thousands of years before now, thousands of years ago, they were talking about that day. That day that is approaching. 
And brothers and sisters, we are so much closer to that day than they were. We can just sense that it's coming, can't we? Don't you sense it? That that day is out there, that that day is approaching. There is just something different happening in our world right now that I cannot explain to you other than to say it's unlike anything I've ever seen or felt. It's like we can see it, we can sense it, but we can't stop it. And that day is out there. And that day may be rapidly approaching. And all we can do is watch it unfold before our eyes. Just some examples of things that are happening that may be setting the stage. Of course, the war in Ukraine with Russia and Ukraine that could escalate still yet, could escalate into a World War III. Or the worldwide food shortages. And part of that is due to the war in Ukraine because it is the breadbasket of the world where so much of, of our food is grown in Ukraine. Isn't it interesting that that's the place where the world is watching the worldwide food supply problems. And then there's problems in the global economy. I don't need to tell you what's happening in the global economy and what's happening in our nation. And then there are supply chain issues around the world. I mean, in our lifetime, have we ever seen that kind of a thing? That kind of supply chain issue that you can't even get baby food or, or whatever it may be? And then, of course, the, the crown of it all is the COVID pandemic. Things that we could not even imagine a few years ago are taking place in our world right now. And understand this, these things are not just randomly happening. Listen to me church, they are moving towards that day. They are not randomly happening. David Jeremiah said it best when he said, I quote, The more we look around today, the more it seems like our modern world and contemporary way of life are hanging by a thread. David Jeremiah. I would say to you today, in all seriousness, if you don't know the Lord, you need to give your life to Jesus because that day is quickly approaching. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. And if you wait for that day, you will have waited too late. Yes, I think all of us would agree. Our world is in chaos. But listen to me. None of that compares to that day and the calamity and the catastrophe and the death that will come on billions of people on that day. But this is not an end times event sermon. I'm just setting the stage for verse 1. Because verse 1 suddenly takes a turn we don't expect. Chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, Isaiah reveals that the people of God will be singing in that day, this day of catastrophe, in that day, this day of chaos, in that day that will affect billions of people, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And the interesting thing about this entire chapter is that Isaiah actually gives us the lyrics to the song. Beginning in the second half of verse 1, all the way through the chapter, he, he's saying, this is the song. Here are the lyrics. God's people will be singing this song that day. 
And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. How do God's people sing a song in the midst of doom and gloom? And why will they be singing a song? I would say to you, one of the reasons, this is not part of the outline, but one of the reasons I think God's people will be singing that day is because sometimes our words just aren't enough. Music, the song, is an expression of our hearts. And we as God's people are going to see and experience God in a way we've never seen or experienced Him. We will see the greatness of God and the goodness of God displayed. And our response to what we are seeing and to what we are witnessing is that our hearts will respond in song. We will praise the Lord for His goodness and His greatness on that day. I mean, let let me say it to you this way. You can say... It is well with my soul. But it just means more when you sing it, doesn't it? Sometimes when you say it, it just comes out of your mouth. But when you sing it, at least sometimes when you sing it, it feels like you're expressing your heart. So don't be surprised that on that day, God's people will start singing. But what I want to talk to you about today is why. God's people will be singing on that day. And let me, let me say that there is a then and a now application to this text. The then application is obvious. That there is a global judgment that will end the world. A global judgment where God's enemies will be destroyed. A global judgment where God will restore the people of God to the city of Jerusalem or Mount Zion as it's referred to. And we can read about it a little bit in verses 1 and 2. Pick up God's Word and look again at verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And here's the song. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The nation that keeps faith. So, if we had time, we could dig into the entire chapter and talk about the then application. But the then application is simply that God will level the earthly cities of the world and He will raise and exalt Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem. Because that will be God's people. That's the then application. If we had time, we could camp there for a while. But I really want to talk to you about the now application. You see, listen to me. Listen carefully. The reason... That God's people will sing then are the same reasons that God's people can sing now. You see, the, the things that will motivate God's people then to sing are the things that can and should motivate us now to sing because God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we will have reason to sing then, but let me tell you something, church, we also have reason to sing now. Some years ago, Carl Truman asked an important question, an intriguing question that got a lot of people thinking and got a lot of response online. And the question that he asked was this, what can miserable Christians sing? It was kind of an unusual question. It caught everybody's attention. What can miserable Christians sing? What he meant by that question was simply, how do we sing when life is so hard? What do we have to sing about when we don't have a song in our heart? How do miserable Christians sing? Well, Isaiah answers the question for us in chapter 26. I'm going to give you two things today to write down. I'm going to show them to you in the text, but I hope you'll write them down. I want to show you two reasons that you and I will sing then 
are the same two reasons we can sing now. All right? First of all, we can sing now because God provides perfect peace. And you might put in parentheses, even in the darkest of days. We can sing now because God provides perfect peace. Even in the darkest of days. You see, when we come to Isaiah 26, this is no ordinary song. This is a song of celebration in the midst of a crisis. This is a song of celebration of who God is and His sovereignty over that crisis. So I want you to look at a few lines from that song with me in verse 3. And there's a couple of words that I want to call to your attention He, or you, speaking about God, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. I want you to look at that phrase, perfect peace. The word peace that you see there is the Hebrew word shalom. Would you say that back to me? Shalom. If you ever get to go to Israel with me, when you go over there, people will say that to you a lot. When they meet you, they will say shalom. Or when you leave, or when they leave you, they'll say shalom. The word shalom simply means peace, but, but it, it's kind of deeper than just that, that shallow word peace. The word shalom, really, when we think of peace, we think of peace as an absence of conflict, an absence of problems. But the biblical concept of shalom means to have a quietness of your soul, even in the midst of conflict. A quietness of soul, even in the midst of conflict. But notice in verse 3, he doesn't just refer to peace. He refers to perfect peace. Now, if you were to read this text in the Hebrew Bible, you would not read the word perfect peace. Instead, you would read two Hebrew words that are identical. It would say, shalom, shalom. That's exactly what the word... Verse 3, you will keep in shalom, shalom, is what it says. In other words, the word shalom is repeated twice. Well, why did they translate it perfect peace? Because if they had translated it peace, peace, we would have thought they've made a mistake. Why did they duplicate these words? But actually in the original text, the translators are trying, how do we describe this peace, peace? How do we describe this shalom, shalom? And finally they realize it's perfect peace. It's not just peace. It's perfect peace because it's peace that comes from God. It is shalom, shalom. Not just peace, but double peace. It's a complete peace that only comes from God. Let me show you this in verse 12. Skip down to verse 12. Lord, you establish peace for us. That would be a verse to underline right there. Lord, you, it comes from you, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. You see, what Isaiah was talking about when he said peace, peace, or shalom, shalom, or perfect peace, it is a form of peace you cannot find anywhere else or in anyone else. It only comes from God. It is a peace in the New Testament. It is a peace that is beyond human reasoning. And the reason it is a peace beyond human reasoning is because it does not come from human resources. So how do we get this 
double piece. Or somebody said after the first service, said, Pastor, that's a double barrel piece. So how do we get this double barrel piece? I want you to notice a key phrase in verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace, or peace, peace, shalom, shalom. Him whose mind is what, church? Steadfast. The word steadfast means to lean on God in total confidence. To lean on God in total confidence. Or as the King James says, you'll keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you. You see, this peace, peace is the kind of peace that comes to the person who is completely trusting in God. Peace is elusive for a lot of people, isn't it? They don't have inner peace. They don't have inner peace in their life. Though they've tried to find it, they just can't seem to get it. And many times it's because they're trying to find that peace from people that they know. They're trying to find that peace in places that they go. They're trying to find that peace in things that they do. I want to tell you something. People were never meant to be the source of your peace. Politicians are never meant to be the source of your security. Even you are not the source of your peace and security. Because there is a limit to what you can do. There is a limit to what you know. There is a limit to what you control. Let me tell you something, church. Peace comes in trusting God rather than trusting in yourself or someone else. Peace comes when you fully lean on God. And that's what it says. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast. He is fully leaning on God. Maybe I'll say it to you this way. It'll be a great day in your life when you can say in all honesty, I am not in control and that's okay. Real peace is when you recognize God's in control. The Hebrew word for trust, as I told you, means to lean on God. It means to, to lean on God with certainty. To lean on God with confidence. And I've got a very simple question for you. Have you been leaning on God lately? Look at the simplicity of verse 3, the end of the verse. Him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Isn't that simple? He has this peace, peace. This shalom, shalom, this peace that only God can give. And here's the reason he has it. Because he trusts in you. When troubles hit, it's quite natural for our minds to focus on how bad things are, right? When suffering comes, all we can think about is the pain. But it takes a deliberate act of our will to focus our mind away from the problems and away from the pain and to focus our minds on God. But if you are ever going to have peace, peace, it will come only when you put your total trust in God and lean on Him. And here's what I found. Somebody please get ready to say amen to this. Here's what I found, church. In those times when I have intentionally leaned on God, I have found He is reliable. Can I show you how reliable He is? In verse 4, trust in the Lord how long? Yeah. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. 
Remember the old hymn, Rock of Ages? The lady who wrote that song got the idea from that verse. For the Lord is the rock eternal. Now, does that mean that all your circumstances are going to turn out the way you want them to? Probably not. Does that mean that you'll always be happy and life will always be easy? No. Life may not be easy, but hear me. Life may not be easy, but peace is possible. In spite of the circumstances. And that is why we can sing praises to God. Because even in difficult days, our God can give us perfect peace. You see, on that day, on that day of judgment, then, God's people will be singing because in the midst of the chaos, God has given them perfect peace. But that same God could do the same thing today. He can give perfect peace in the midst of your chaos. Shalom, shalom. Peace, peace. Second thing is this. We can sing praises to God in difficult days when we demonstrate absolute allegiance to Him. The first point talks about what God does for us and how we respond to it. The second point is more about our response to God. When we demonstrate absolute allegiance, so perfect peace, point one. Point two is absolute allegiance. Verse seven and eight. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. I love verse 8. It outlines for us what absolute allegiance to God really looks like. If you look at each phrase carefully, there's three different phrases that kind of outline for us absolute allegiance to God. The first phrase of absolute allegiance are two words, yes, Lord. You see it at the very first part of verse 8. The first phrase that we're going to look at is that phrase, yes, Lord. Those two words summarize the kind of relationship you can have with God. It's the kind of relationship God wants you to have with Him. It's a relationship where you readily say, yes, Lord. For some of you, life is never going to make sense until you put those two words on your tongue and you mean them. Yes, Lord. For some of you, you're never going to break that bondage in your life unless you're willing to say, yes, Lord. And in that moment of surrender, that's when you really are opening your life up to Him and to what He can do. Those two words, yes, Lord, when you really mean them, can become life-changing. For some of you, God may be calling you into some kind of a ministry or to missions and you've been saying, no Lord. And you felt justified in giving God your no and you've tried to rationalize your no. But you're never going to be able to serve the Lord the way you could and should unless you willingly say, yes, Lord. You see, whatever's on the other side of Lord, whatever He has in store, whatever's on the other side of Lord, you will never find it until you say yes. Yes. I came across something Pastor John Wimber wrote uh, one time and really is a great example of what yes Lord means. He said, I'm just changing God's pocket and He can spend me any way He wants to. That's when you know you really are saying yes Lord. 
when you acknowledge there's nothing special about me. And by the way, he was a prominent pastor. But, but you're saying, you're acknowledging there's nothing really special about me. I'm just changing God's pocket. But he can spend me any way he wants to. I want to live that kind of life. I want to say yes to Lord. That is absolute allegiance. The second phrase to help us understand absolute allegiance is found in verse 8. And it's the phrase, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Now, now listen to me. When you say, yes, Lord, that decision to say yes to God has to translate in the way you live your life. All of us have had those times when we, we were emotional and we said yes and we never lived it out. We never followed up. But notice the two important words in verse 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Notice the word walking and the word wait. Walking in the way of your laws it talks about simply obedience to God's Word. That, look up here for a moment. You're tr- when you said yes to the Lord from that day on, you're trying to let this book shape your life. You're walking in obedience to what God shows you in this Word. That's what walking symbolizes there. Waiting simply is trusting God with your future. Trusting God with your future. You're waiting on Him to provide or to guide or to use you. You're just waiting on God. And so many of the problems we have in life would, would simply not be that big of a deal if we would walk in obedience to the Word of the Lord and wait on God to show us what's next. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in the emotion of, I'm saying yes to God, and the emotion of all of that is, is, is incredible. But when you really are walking and waiting with the Lord, that's when you know that the yes Lord meant something. So what is absolute allegiance? Here's the third way I would describe it to you. The third part of the verse. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. That yes Lord at the beginning of the verse now is more than a decision. But that yes Lord now has become a lifestyle. Your name and renown are the desires of our hearts. Your life begins to be shaped not by your desires, but but by His desires. Your desire now becomes to make His name great. However you can do that, wherever you can do that, your desire becomes to make His name great. Your life should be lived for that ultimate thing. You see, all of us, listen to me, listen to me. Whether you know Christ or not, whether you're living for the Lord or not, we all live for an ultimate thing. And your ultimate thing might be different from the person next to you, but we all live our lives striving for that ultimate thing. And the ultimate thing for some people is money. The ultimate thing for some people is, fi- is family. The ultimate thing for some people is success and recognition and all kinds of things and goals and all. The ultimate thing for the child of God is this. Your name and renown are the desires of our heart. Now listen, I want to say this to you as clearly as I can. Other things in your life can be important. They can be influential. They can be essential. They can even be critical. But only one thing can be ultimate. And that ultimate thing ought to be God. Verse 13 is a good prayer that maybe some of us need to pray. Verse 13, Isaiah, this is part of the song. Isaiah says, O Lord, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us. 
but your name alone do we honor. Other people have ruled over us. For you, you might say other things have taken prominence, have ruled over me. But now I've decided your name is to be the ultimate thing in my life. I think Zig Ziglar had it right. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. This difficult road that you're walking on right now, for some of you, might be the perfect time for you to ask God to walk that road with you. Ultimate, I'm sorry, difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. This difficult road you find yourself on right now might be the perfect time, listen, 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 for you to start singing praises to God. Now why do you say that, Pastor? Because that's what the whole text is about. In that day, we will sing praises to the Lord. Why? Not because of the chaos going on around us, but we'll sing praises to the Lord because He provides ultimate peace and because it is our way of demonstrating our allegiance to Him. He provides perfect peace and and we sing to demonstrate our absolute allegiance. So that dark road that you're walking on right now might be the perfect time for you to start singing praises to the Lord. Because, listen, I bet you'll agree with this. I don't know of another way to feel closer to God so quickly as to sing praises to His name and mean it. Now some of you are going to say, but pastor, I don't sing. There's a reason I'm not in the choir. There's a reason I don't sing on Sunday morning. I don't, you don't want me to sing. Even God doesn't want me to sing. Well, thankfully God did put that verse in the Bible, make a joyful noise to the Lord. I'm going to tell you something, even pigs make a joyful noise. I'm not trying to insult anybody, but you throw food to pigs and all of a sudden they start grunting. They make a joyful noise because they're eating. If pigs can make a joyful noise, I think you can too. So let me, give you a, let me give you a recommendation before I leave. Especially if you're in a dark time. You're just struggling. And you can't figure out why life is happening the way it is. And it's a dark, difficult road you're walking. Go get in the car by yourself. Find some praise music on the radio. Pull it up on your phone. Roll up the windows. Get out by yourself. And just praise the Lord for who He is. Not for what's happening in your life. Just praise the Lord for who He is. Just spend some time letting your heart express the emotions and and just spend some time thanking God for all that He's given you. Because when you sing praises to God, You're acknowledging you and only you are the one who can give me perfect peace. I can't find perfect peace in other people or other things. Only you can provide perfect peace. And that's one reason you sing praises to God. And then you also sing to say, God, I'm singing today. I might be off key, but I just want to demonstrate my absolute allegiance to you. And so I'm expressing my heart as I sing praises to you. Listen, church, we're going to do that then. Why not get started doing that now? Would you pray with me?
I said earlier in the message that if you don't know Christ as Savior, because that day is rapidly approaching, and I'm not about to try to tell you when that's coming, but things are not happening randomly in our world. Things are not happening accidentally in our world. We are moving towards that day. God is sovereignly orchestrating the events towards that day. And I'm not trying to scare you into heaven. I'm just trying to make sure that you have the opportunity to say yes to God. Because Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Right now, you have that opportunity. Right now, He can be found. Right now, He is near. He is just a prayer away. If you'd pray in your heart and mean everything that you say, Dear Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I have failed you. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I repent of that. I turn away from it. I ask you to come into my heart and save me. And I surrender my life to you. Come live in my heart and live your life in me and through me. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. If you just pray a simple, heartfelt prayer like that, you can immediately become part of God's forever family. I would love for you to add your voice to the choir on that day. Would you come and tell me that you've trusted Christ? Or if you've not yet do, done that, would you come and put your hand in mine and say, I, I need to receive Christ as my Savior. Others of you, other needs, feel free to come to this altar and pray. You can always pray here at this altar. Father, you're a Lord and you're a God and you are good. Thank you that for centuries and centuries and centuries, your prophets and the authors of Scripture have told us about that day that is coming. In your goodness, in your graciousness, you have let us know what is ahead. Help us to say, yes, Lord, whatever that means. May we say, yes, Lord, as we prepare for that day. In Christ's name I pray, amen.